Now, when, August, when Constantine became the Roman emperor, he wanted to use Christianity as a way to unify Rome. Unfortunately, he found that Christians were splintering according to two, on two main lines at the beginning of the 300s. Dantonism, Donatism, Donatists is the man who started the schism, Donatism, and Arianism, Arius, who started the schism. We'll look at the first one. Donatism, the schism started during the persecution in Diocletian, and it was the same problem. What about people who gave in to persecution? Some bishops were handing over heretical books, saying these are the orthodox books, and were saving their lives that way. Other bishops were handing over to the authorities scriptures to be burned. They justified this by saying, it's better that the pages of the scripture burn than my congregation burn. <coughs> Some people were giving in completely. Some of these bishops who had given in became bishops again when the persecution was over. Donatists wanted, this was in Carthage, which was just south of the Mediterranean Sea there, wanted no part of this. Said, if a bishop who is a traitor, that's what they call people who had given in the stuff, he is no longer a legitimate bishop. And if he's not a legitimate bishop, whoever he, ordinate, whoever he ordains is not legitimate. Anybody he baptized has not received true baptism. And it was starting this long process of people who had been ordained by traitorous bishops or had been baptized by traitorous bishops. And the Donatists were saying, your Christianity is not legitimate. You have not truly been baptized. You need to go find a legitimate bishop to baptize you. And it was creating a schism. The main issue was who is providing the power or the effectiveness of the spiritual act, what came to be known as a sacrament. Is it found in the sacrament itself, in baptism or in the communion, which I may refer to as the Eucharist, so if I say Eucharist, I'm referring to communion. Or is it found in the authority of the person who is administering it? And it became split. And it continued to stay split for hundreds of years. <clears throat> saying that the bishop had to be pure in order for the sacrament to count. I'll get into the answer to it that the church adopted when I'm talking about Augustine. Augustine is someone who spent a lot of time writing against the Donatists. But so that's, in a nutshell, what the Donatist controversy was about. Does that make sense? You know the basics of it? I didn't see if your answer was positive. But the other faction that was splintering the church was Arianism. Arius was a pastor, I want to say also in that, I think he was, um, no I don't know so I'm going to guess that he was up near Antioch somewhere. The reason being was he was teaching that Jesus Christ, the Logos, was not fully God. Because 
What was important to Arius is that Jesus be fully human. He said in order for Jesus to be a savior of humanity, he has to be 100% human. Arius had some Greek ideas about how God was immutable, which means unchangeable, how he had no passions, could not experience. He said, if, for one thing, God can't become a man because that would be a change. And God can't experience the limitations of humanity because God cannot experience any type of limitation. Any type of a change in God is a change to the worse, and God is perfect. It was the ideas of the Greeks again. Remember how Justin Martyr claimed the concept of the Logos? Because the Greeks had kind of an intermediary idea of God that said, <coughs> God's impassable, unchangeable, no emotions, but he's, his reason or his logic kind of a rational spirit that we all have a spark of, is called the Logos. Christians took that term, Logos is where we get logic from, said the Logos became human. The Logos was with God, and the Logos became flesh, which is what John says in chapter 1. But do you see Arius' problem? How in the world can God become a man if God cannot change? It's heresy. So he says, either Jesus is not fully um, God, or he's not fully human. So he wanted to, he thought that humanity was the most important because he saw salvation as us learning to follow the example of someone who truly walked in our shoes, that he, he was fully a man. Alexander of Alexandria, who was the bishop there, denounced Arius' ideas. Arius' ideas were starting to spread. They were being put to tunes. Dock workers were singing these songs with theological lines like, there was a time when the sun was not, and probably a little more creatively than that, but that was the essence <laughs> of what they were saying, is there was a time when the sun was not. He was not saying that the Logos came into existence when Jesus was born. Rather, he was the first creation. This is something very similar to what Mormons and Jehovah's Witness teach today. So, for, for reference. This was growing into a huge controversy where people were saying, you know what? Arius' ideas make sense. If that's God, I don't want to sacrifice Jesus' humanity. We must be saved. Now, to Alexander said, if, if Jesus is not fully God, he cannot save us because it's important for Jesus to be a spokesperson for the divine. For Alexandrians, salvation was not just having your sins forgiven, it was becoming part of the divine. Irenaeus, in one of his first systematic theologies, and he's not becoming a god in the sense of the, of the New Age movement, their kind of motto was that God became like us so that we could become like him, in communion with him, to receive his divine power. Irenaeus talked about a recapitulation. I'll break that down for you. You know, to decapitate someone is to cut off their head. That's where the, the, the capu in <laughs> recapitulation, it's, it's a re-headship. But he meant head not just in the sense of a new brain, but head in the, the source of the, a river's head is the source of the river. 
So he said, we've received a fallen source in Adam. Adam was our first head. And in him, we all, in Adam, we all fell. We're all tainted by sin. God came to be a new human to give us a new head and salvation, a new source of life, a new communion with God. And to become a Christian means to partake in this divine union with God, this glorification process where we're filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the predominant understanding of salvation. And so to the Alexandrians, you couldn't be a Christian if Jesus was not God. Athanasius, who was a disciple of Alexandria, Alexander, uh, started expounding on these themes. And during this time, he wrote a treatise on the Incarnation. He says, his example was that, you know, if a Roman emperor comes to a community, that community automatically receives honor because this emperor graced it with his presence, and it receives a special protection because the emperor is there. He said, in the same way, our planet has received honor and protection because God himself has visited this planet. For Athanasius, God becoming man was the very heart of what it meant to be a Christian. So these men were fighting furiously, diligently, for the idea that Jesus was God. Now when Constantine heard about this schism, he was not real equipped to handle these theological matters. So what he did was he called a council. Now remember how I said the bishop became the head leader. He was the one who was offering uh, the sacraments, offering forgiveness, keep protecting the church. Before there was no testament, the, the bishop played a very powerful role in protecting the church. The bishop was the head authority. Some of these men abused it. What do you do with a bishop who's abusing his power and who's teaching heresy? He's the head power who's over the bishop to remove the errant bishop. So the way they dealt with that, today we just deal with it by pointing to scripture, but back then they called a synod where the bishops would get together and would vote on the matter to discuss the matter. What, Athen what Constantine did was he called the first ecumenical or universal council. He gathered bishops, which were the spiritual head, from all parts of the known Roman Empire. Over 300 of them. Some say it was 318, but that number is suspect because Abraham had 318 men, and they wonder if historians rounded it off for the spiritual significance of 318. But what is a fact is that there were over 300 bishops there, including Santa Claus. <laughs> St. Nicholas was there. Now, Al Arius, and your mom said there was no such thing as Santa Claus. <laughs> Alec Arius, who was not a bishop, was not allowed to vote in this council of Nicaea. Nicaea, um, I don't know if you can see it up there. I don't know if I can see it. It's right there. Constantinople's right there, and Nicaea's right there. Nicaea was Constantine's summer home. So very convenient to call the council there. This is an amazing picture of what was happening, because these bishops, a lot of them, just, this was 325, by the way, just 12 years earlier, 
they had been in the midst of persecution. So a lot of these bishops were missing eyes, missing limbs, were, hu were huddled over, and now they're getting an all-expense-paid trip to the tourist capital <laughs> of Rome to discuss this matter. Now, only about, I think, 20 of these men were followers of Arius. But the, the key representative for Arianism was Eusebius of Nicomedia. He was the bishop who was adopting Arius' ideas and was going to proclaim them at the council. A lot of the bishops did not know what the problem was about. They were very disappointed that Christianity is finally recognized and we are shaming ourselves with the argument over a fine point of doctrine. Some of these bishops thought, I don't exactly know what Arius is saying, but I do know it's very important that Jesus be fully human. So if that's all he's teaching, I'm all with Arius. Other people said, all Arius is arguing against is modalism. He's just trying to show that Jesus is distinct from God the Father, and I'm all with that. So a lot of these bishops were not sure what they were going to vote on. Now, Eusebius of Nicomedia, not the historian, the Arian, made kind of a strategic blunder because he got up and he right away said, what we're trying to teach here is that there was a time when the sun was not. Jumped right to the controversial. I mean, he could have been politically savvy and just focused on, we're just trying to be against modalism here. We're just trying to say that Jesus is fully human. But no, he went right to the heart of it and said there was a time when Jesus was not. At this Santa Claus got up and punched someone, he was so mad. <laughs> Probably legend. But the whole place erupted into a riot. Bishops stomping their, stomping their feet, saying, heresy, you lie. Jesus is God. He was co-eternal with the Father. And when it calmed down, they realized they needed to come up with a creed. And Constantine said, look, I don't care what decision you come up with, but I want you to get this resolved and we'll make this official state policy. You're the best minds I could find. You come up with a definition. Uh, if you want to turn into your notes, not turn into them, turn to them. I have felt like I've been turning into notes. This is what they wrote in the first council of Nicaea in 325. We believe in one God, the Father, Almighty Maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God. There was a key phrase in here of the same essence as the Father, of like substance. The Greek word was homousius. Don't ask me to spell it, but it was an H and an O and a bunch of other letters that sounded like homoousis. <laughs> it meant of same substance. A very key word later on. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now, I'm not sure if, if the word was repeated against there or if that was just the place where that word was used. By whom all things were made, both in heaven and earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered on the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost. But, this was added on to that first council. <clears throat> but those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, 
or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and the Apostle Church. I'm trying to make it very clear, if you're an Arian, you're not a Christian. You're not a, we want no part of that. I'm sure the bishops went home from that exalting. We've solved this problem, the emperor's on their side. Eusebius of the historian voted against Arius. He thought this was great. We're, we're achieving political unity here. Anybody who did not sign the Council of Nicaea was removed from their office of bishop and exiled. Now, Eusebius of Nicomedia might have been a distant relative of Constantine, but anyway, he had Constantine's ear. Eusebius is the Arian. And he somehow got a message to Constantine that says, look, you've made a major mistake here. And he re started re-explaining this to Constantine, saying, you misunderstood this. This was just a political fiasco. You need to adopt the policies of Arius. So Constantine changed, and he started adopting the policy of Arius. Eusebius of Nicomedia came back, and he became Constantine's chief spiritual advisor. When Constantine was baptized on his deathbed, it was Eusebius of Nicomedia who baptized him. So for the rest of Constantine's reign, he had an Arian influence. And because of this, Arians were starting to receive uh, positions of office, just infiltrating the church. Athanasius was vigorously trying to defend this. Some bishops wanted the creed changed, and there was another mini-council that changed the, count, the, the creed to say that Jesus is of similar substance. If you look at the way it's spelled in the Greek, it only adds an I in the middle. I don't know how it's pronounced, but it just adds one letter. So Edward Gibbons, when he's talking about the fall of Rome, says, I can't believe these Christians were killing each other and fighting over one letter. Uh, our recent theologian has responded that one little punctuation mark can make a big difference. This woman in the age of the telegraph was traveling through Egypt and she found this incredible, I can't remember if it was a, a necklace or a diamond ring, but it was this piece of jewelry that had tremendous value. And she wrote back to her husband and said, can I buy this? Here's how much it costs. He wrote back and said, no, exclamation mark. Price too high. The telegraph operator did not put the exclamation mark in there and said, no price too high. So she went ahead and bought it. Just an example of how one little jot can drastically change the meaning of a sentence. And for the people who are arguing for the deity of Christ, that one little letter was huge. It was the difference between salvation or not salvation, whether God had entered our planet or just a superior angel had entered our planet. Athanasius tried to get a the ear of the emperor, a one time, but Eusebius didn't want any part of Athanasius appearing before Constantine. One time Athanasius actually jumped in front of Constantine's horse while he was out for a, a drive and shook the horse's bridle. That scared Constantine so much. His, his enemies called him a black dwarf because he was, he was dark-skinned from Africa, short, but a powerhouse intellectually. 
apparently the incarnation on the incarnation is still read today and still in print as a devotional. Tremendous insights into what happened when God became a man. Athanasius is the one who wrote the biography of Antony. But Constantine had Athanasius exiled. Constantine died and the empire was split between his three sons. One of them was pro-Aryan. The other two that were... One was pro-Nicaea. One didn't really care. Constantinius... This is going to be a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> Constantius was the one who ended up... He was pro-Aryan. And to make a long story short, he became the sole empire, emperor of the empire. Jerome later said, the whole world awoke from its slumber to find itself Aryan. Athanasius had been cast out, Christian communities were splintered, but the, all the government weight of authority was behind Arius. Now, and Arius during this time was exiled. Now, between whichever brother was in power in their political squabbles, he was either sent off to exile, allowed back, sent off to exile. One time he was being tracked down. He was on the river trying to hide, and he was being tracked down by the, I guess, the police. And he came up to the ship, and the ones who were hunting him says, have you seen Athanasius? And Athanasius responded truthfully, yes, he's just ahead of you. If you hurry up, you will overtake him. So they said, thank you, sir, and they took off. <laughs> During his time of exile, he spent time with the monks, acquired their, a taste for their life, their spiritual disciplines. Uh, but Athanasius died before his final victory. But before he died, there was a relative of Constantine, who when his three, his name was Julian, Christian person, but when this kingdom was split between Constantine's three sons, all their relatives were killed so that there wouldn't be family squabbles over who would inherit the kingdom. Const uh, Julian was only six during this time. And he was so bitter towards the way Christians treated his family that he's now known as Julian the Apostate. At school, he developed a love for the pagan philosophers and the pagan writings. But throughout the course of his life, he was a wise, able person. He ascended the ranks of power. And after Constantius died, he was made the emperor of Rome. He said, all people who were exiled under my father's reign, they can come back. I want to start restoring peace to this, but I want to do it not to the Christian God. I want to do it in honor of paganism. The pagan temples were in shambles. The, the priests were dressed in rags. They didn't have enough money to provide for themselves. Julian said, the one thing I like about Christianity is the way they're taking care of their own. And he put this mandate on the pagan priests. He said, make sure you, would, you emulate the Christians in this matter of caring for the sick, the unwanted. <coughs> uh, Christians were pointing how Jesus had fulfilled his prophecies by saying the temple had been destroyed within a generation like he prophesied. So he said, well, enough of that, let's rebuild the temple. Mm -hmm. And while he was trying to rebuild it, he died. And legend says his last words, thou hast conquered, O Galilean. He had, 
The other way he had attacked Christians was through ridicule. He had, he'd written a book called Against the Galileans. And he also forbid Christians from teaching the classics because that was the way these men were worming their way into people's hearts, teaching the Greek classics and in so doing them, giving them the Christian message. After Julian, there was a series of, of weak empires. At this time, uh, there was trouble brewing to the north with the Visigoths. They were stirring up trouble. They were knocking on the door. A lot of them, these were Germanic tribes. If you can see that, just the, the north and to the right. They had become, they had infiltrated the Roman army. And so trouble was brewing there. Around 378, because the taxes were so high, these Visigoths rebelled and they, they killed one of the Roman emperors at the Battle of Adrianople. And the Roman legion psyche was crushed. Roman legions were, had a legend of invincibility. And here a legend had lost his life. I mean, a governor had lost his life. There was a series of able-bodied generals who were able to withhold them. One of them was Theodosius, who came to power in 381. But I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Remember how the whole empire was finding itself Aryan. Well, there was three men who took up the cause. They're known as the Great Cappadocians. Thankfully, the area they lived was called Cappadocia, and not its current name, which is Turkey, because otherwise they'd be known as the Great Turkeys. <laughs> and it would just be harder to take them seriously. But these Great Cappadocians, one of them was Basil, who is now known as Basil the Great. Ironically, Basil went to school with Julian. At the same school where Basil and Julian were going, he met Gregory of Nazianus, and they became lifelong friends until they were estranged just before their death. Basil had a sister named Macrina. She is an amazing woman. She was betrothed to someone in her teenage years, but her suitor died before they were able to get married. And she was heartbroken, and she vowed that she would never marry again. And she started founding a religious community for women. Basil, her older brother, was very sickly all through growing up. And so because of that, his parents lavished all kinds of money, gifts, the best education that they could afford. When Basil came back from school, Macrina said, Basil, you are so wrapped up in yourself, in your facts and your knowledge, and you have none of the love of Christ in you. He said, please, change. And he didn't want anything to do with it. But then their younger brother, I don't remember his name, it starts with an L, he died. And Basil was heartbroken. And he went to Macrina and he said, can you start teaching me about the religious life, about devotion to God? And she set him on a path where he, Basil, and Gregory of Nazianus set up a, a monastic community. Basil wrote a rule. Remember, the monks we looked at last time were hermits. But a lot of people were saying, being a hermit is not really the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is learning to live in community and serve people. So they started developing synobetic or communal communities. Before them, a man by the name of Pacomius had 
devised an order, but he was too strict. The men all left him. So the next time, he was even more strict, and it worked beautifully. He made the men beg to be a part of this community. Sometimes in this community, it became so successful that he would make them beg for three days before he let them in. Because one of his rules was that when you're let into this community, it's for life. And you have to renounce all your, you have to renounce all your wealth, and you have to swear obedience. But the times were so tumultuous that a lot of these people begging for three days were not even Christians. They, want, they had to be trained first, but they, the stability they saw and the love that they saw in these communities so overwhelmed them, they thought, I want that. One person who read Anthony said, you know, what really matters in life? Is it just trying to earn money? Is it just trying to get in the emperor's good graces? Or is there something more satisfactory we should look to? And this is what was drawing people. But Basil is known as the founder or the father of Greek monasticism because he wrote a rule that focused on service. Basil himself took on the most menial tasks in the monastery. He lived by his own rule. <coughs> now, while Basil was there, he, he Gregory of Nazianus and Basil and Macrina's brother, Gregory of Nyssa, are known as the great Cappadocians or the Cappadocian fathers. They wrote prolifically defending the Trinity, using terminology that got to the heart of the issue. Athanasius himself recognized that before he died, you know, a lot of bishops who would be on our cause are objecting to the word homusius because they think it, they think it means no distinction. And so when they're arguing against Arianism, which says that Jesus is not God, they think they're arguing against modalism, which says there's no distinction. So Athanasius and the Cappadocian Fathers started writing letters clarifying that there is one what, one divine substance, but three distinct who's, three persons. And that's become the classic formula for the Trinity. And these men went for this. Basil the Great left his monastery because he needed to serve, but he was so sickly. Uh, he, he came to this community that had been ravaged by famine, and he started hitting this, this congregation hard, saying, you have people who are starving to death, and you have wealthy among you. There's enough resources to go around. If the rich people would give to the poor, nobody would be rich and nobody would be poor. He, when this bishop of this congregation died, there was a split between the Arians and the Orthodox. And this was happening in all these communities. <clears throat> some wanted the Orthodox, which at that time was Arianism, and some wanted to be the Orthodox, which was the Nicene position. They said, we can't have Basil as our bishop, he's too sickly. The Arians said this, and the Nicene said, we're not looking for a gladiator, we need a bishop. <laughs> and they accepted him. The emperor, who at this time was Arian, wanted to shut up this Basil, so he sent a tribune or proconsul, whatever they called their policeman, to shut him up. And he says, look, you know, I have the power to exile you, to, I have the power to take everything you own. I have the power to exile you. I have the power to torture you. I could even put you to death. Basil calmly responded, and this is such a classic response, he said, 
If you confiscate my goods, all you're going to get is these rags and a few books. If you exile me, wherever I go, I'm gonna, it's going to feel like home because I'll be God's guest. If you torture me, my body's already dead in Christ. And if you kill me, you'll be doing me the greatest favor you can because I'll get to be with God. And this man said, I've never heard a bishop speak like this. He said, well, then maybe you haven't ever heard a real bishop. <laughs> Gregory of Nyssa, the younger brother in the family, was a completely different sort than Basil. He was healthier physically, but he had a disposition where he just was wanted solitude. He married, and when his wife died, it broke his heart so much that he wrote a book defending celibacy. He says, if you stay single, you will not have to go through the pain of watching your wife go through childbirth. You won't have to go through the pain of losing her. You'll, be spare, you'll spare yourself much heartache. When Basil died, Gregory went to his sister Macrina, who at the same time was dying of an asthma attack. And he came to her for comfort, and now she was dying. He was just racked with grief. And while Macrina was on her deathbed, she was preaching to, Bas to Gregory about the resurrection, telling him to stay strong. And after she died, he picked up the cause of defending the Nicene Orthodoxy. And he <coughs> ended up being at the Council of 381, where Theodosius, who made Christianity the official state religion, before it had just been a recognized religion, Theodosius I and 380 conquered, became the emperor, made it the state religion, but he was also Nicene. And he said anyone who's an Arian is going to be put to death. And he had a council in 381, which is the Council of Constantinople, which is known as the Second Ecumenical or Universal Council, where Arianism was reaffirmed. And you can see that other council of Nicaea where they removed the anathema. Okay, I, I spent too much time on that whole story, but hopefully you found it interesting and gave you a taste of, of what people were struggling with and why it was so important. But there's four classic fathers, I'm just going to have to briefly touch on them, who all were born within, I think, 15, 20 years of each other, and they all died within 50, 20 years of each other. We have Ambrose. I, I'm heeding Grandma's warning not to shine this in my eye. That's Milan, you see that? Ambrose became Bishop of Milan. We have John Chrysostom, who became a preacher at Antioch and then became the Bishop of Constantinople. We have Jerome, who uh, ended up in a monastery in Bethlehem. And we have Augustine, who was born in Carthage and then ended up being the Bishop of Hippo, which is somewhere around there. So I'm just going to have to briefly go through these men, because each one of these, their lives are fascinating. Ambrose um, was a very, he was born into a position of wealth, very able governor, very popular for his policies. He was a governor. There was a congregation in Milan that had a crisis. The bishop had died, 
and the congregation was rioting, the community was rioting, they were split between the Arians. This was before it had been established in 381, probably the 360s sometime. He went to this congregation to resolve it. Now, the Arians and the Nicaeans wanted their leader in place, and he was trying to calm the crowd, and story is a child's voice rang out, Ambrose for bishop. Now they all respected Ambrose so much, they started chanting, Ambrose for bishop. And they roped them in to being the bishop. The problem was he was only a catechumen. He hadn't even been baptized yet. So they scurried him through the process. He had to ascend different levels, and he did them all in a week before he became the bishop. And he became a very respected orator, he also was very gutsy in how he stood up to the emperor. The first time he stood up to the emperor, it was the empress. She was an Arian, and there was this church building that she wanted for the Arians. And Ambrose says, no, I refuse to re relinquish this building to be used in, this <laughs> in the worship of heresy. <clears throat> and he joined the congregation, they refused to leave this building until the empress backed off. He won that first battle. Another time he clashed with Theodosius. Remember, he was the emperor who declared Christianity the state religion. But Theodosius had a temper. In Thessalonica, there was a riot because homosexuality was outlawed, and this famous charioteer was outlawed, was put in jail for being homosexual. Now the people who loved the chariot races, they said, free him. And they rioted and they ended up killing some of the rulers in the area. Theodosius was so mad, he called this huge chariot race that was going to have the biggest stars in the land. He packed this Colosseum, then locked the doors and sent his soldiers in there to slaughter people. Killed 7,000 people in revenge for this. Ambrose said, Theodosius, you have no business doing that. And he excommunicated him. He said, you're not going to receive Christian fellowship or, or communion. Communion was very important to them because they, were, they believed that they were receiving the Spirit's power through the partaking of communion. Theodosius ended up repenting. And Ambrose left a legacy of standing up to the emperor. And we're starting to see now a split between the policies of the West and the policies of the East. In the West, the church started standing up to the emperors, and when Rome fell, emperors lost all their power. There was a power vacuum that was filled by the Bishop of Rome, who became the Pope. The emperors had no power, so the Christians were left with the spiritual leaders being in charge. However, the Roman Empire continued in Constantinople in that area for another thousand years. They still called themselves the Roman Empire, but we know them as the Byzantine Empire. So it was around the time of Theodosius that it started to be called, historians start referring to it as the Byzantine Empire. Over in here we'll see another story of how when a man tried to stand up to the emperor, it turned different. John Chrysostom was from Antioch. He uh, was a terrific orator. Chrysostom means golden mouth. 
And that was the nickname he received. Um, some of his sermons today are, are so interesting. He, had this, he preached this one sermon against going to the theater. He said, do you realize that the images of those actresses are going to stick with you? And they're going to ignite a fire in you as you think about their walk, the way they acted. They're going to ignite a Babylonian furnace that is going to, in which is going to be burned your, the, your happiness, your spirituality, and your marriage. Just, I mean, he said it much more elegantly than that. He became so popular that the emperor, I think this was the one who succeeded Theodosius, kidnapped him and took him to Constantinople. He thought, if I can have someone as respected as John Chrysostom, as the patriarch of Constantinople, he'll be my puppet. And because he's so respected, I'll be able to influence people through his words. They gave him large amounts of money and he thanked them and moved on. But when he got to Constantinople, he just hit people hard. He still preached against immorality, preached against wealth. He uh, called the Empress Jezebel, which wasn't the, the wisest move strategically. She got mad at him and he ended up getting exiled where he died of overexposure. So you see there the precedent. There the emperor in the east won the battle. In the West, Ambrose won. <coughs> Jerome is known, I'll just have to briefly touch on him, he was a, a very fascinating character. Very temperamental, moody, very sensitive. He surrounded himself with women because men were too quick to criticize him and he could not deal with criticism. <laughs> Anybody who disagreed with him, and I quote, are two-legged asses. I didn't just say that, but he did. <laughs> he struggled so much with what he called the heat of his nature that he needed a distraction. So he took up studying Hebrew, which we thought was penance. He'd fill his mind with he the study of Hebrew so that he wouldn't have time to think about girls. <laughs> he devoted his life to becoming an expert in Hebrew. He, he's known for Jerome's Vulgate. His lifelong accomplishment was, was translating the Old Testament into Latin. But in so doing this, he became very unpopular with a lot of people because the Septuagint was the common phrasing. Just like people grow, get so used to hearing the terminology of the King James Bible, that when you hear an NIV version or someone, you go, whoa, who changed the scriptures? Someone's gonna pay. This was happening back then because this Greek terminology in the Septuagint was so ingrained. But the Septuagint had a lot of problems. But there was a legend going around it. Septuagint means 70. It's based on 70. Because there was a legend that 70 different translators each went into their own parts and translated in alone. And when they came back, their notes were identical. So that, a lot of the apostles quote from the Septuagint, it was the accepted Bible. But when Jerome got into Hebrew, it looked like there was mistakes and that a better translation could be had. He got criticized by Augustine, who sadly I'm not going to have near as much time to get into. We could probably do hours on Augustine. But anyway, Augustine wrote to him and said, please do not aspire to change the scriptures unless you're going to add notes saying where you differ from the Septuagint, which is without equal. And he said, I really doubt that you're going to find anything in the Hebrew that the other men have not found. 
Jerome at first was so devastated by this critique, because here he's devoting his life to this and he gets criticized. So he finally writes back, in essence, he says, you know, you're just a young buck trying to aspire, build yourself up by criticizing your elders, but you know what? I'm not going to get into a fight with it and it's good news for you because the contest wouldn't be equal. <laughs> Jerome was convicted of two things, more than that. The first one, he had one of the most famous nightmares as a young man in all of Christendom, where he was dragged before the tribunal of God and said, Jerome, you are a Ciceronian, not a Christian. In other words, you're spending more time reading Cicero. He woke up than, than reading the writings of Christ. He woke up from that dream and said, okay, that's it. No more pagan philosophers for me. He later downplayed the dream and, and wrote it. The other thing that he was convicted of was bathing. <laughs> He said, we've been washed by Christ, and that is enough. <laughs> he refused to be clean, to cleansed again. He joined himself in Bethlehem with two women who he became very close to. And I don't know if they quit bathing so their smell would mask his, but they also were convicted of cleanliness. And I much prefer Wesley's motto, which is cleanliness is next to godliness. But you could probably smell their monastery for miles away. <laughs> So that's Jerome in, that's Jerome's essence. <laughs> Augustine, born of a pagan father. You're going to have to get into Augustine yourself because I sadly do not have enough time, which is too bad because Augustine is the most, next to Paul, the most influential theologian the church has ever known. He set the standard for, um, he set the standard for Roman Catholicism, a lot of their beliefs. Augustine was quoted almost as if he was inspired scripture. And then the Protestants, when they came along, they equally loved Augustine. It's very rare to find a writer who, outside the New Testament, was so loved by the Protestant reformers and was one of the Roman Catholics' doctors of the church. His life in a nutshell, he had a godly mother named Monica who interceded for him daily. He had a pagan father who was converted on just before he died. He was sent to, I think it was Carthage. Anyways, it was a, a big city. And he developed a love for sensuality. He a, adopted a, a mistress who he lived with for 15 years. He had a son, a deitus, which means gift from God. He didn't want to be a Christian because he had two main problems with Christianity. The first one was the problem of evil. He said, there's no way a good God could be behind this creation of a world with disease and death on every corner. The other problem he had with Christianity was the Old Testament was barbaric. It didn't meet the standards of refined writing that the, the Greeks were accustomed to. There were stories of, of, of incest and rape and brutality. He thought, that's just, it's a despicable book. Those were his two problems. He joined a group called the Manichees, who were kind of a, it was a mixture of Christianity and some, uh, a Persian religion, which basically was dualism. The reason there's good and evil is because there's a good God and there's a bad God. They also believed that ma the, the bad God was behind matter. So for him, that was the way to balance it. 
But he started developing being the probing mind. Like he's, his autobiography is, um, I think it's called The Confessions of St. Augustine. The Confessions. Uh, it's, I've read it. I, I have tremendous psychological insight into people's personal struggles, into the, the mysteries of how memory works. Very profound. It's still read widely. And he includes the details of his life. But he thought, they're not answering half of my questions. So he said, the Manichae said, you have profound questions. Speak with our leader, Faustus. He talked to Faustus, and he was so disappointed with the depth of his answers. But he looked into Neoplatism, which helped them see that God is pure good, but if you kind of move away from God, evil can be seen as a lack. So he said, maybe evil's not so much a thing as it is kind of a deprivation or, or a lack of God. So God's pure goodness, and then maybe God gave us free will, which is a perfectly a good thing, but by giving us free will, we can move away from God. So he said, okay, I've got the problem of evil taken care of, but my last problem is I can't stand these barbaric stories. His mother said, why don't you go listen to Ambrose, who was, who was up in Milan. So he went to Ambrose. At first, it was just to listen to a great orator, so he could learn how to speak beautifully, because that was so important to them. But he started talking to Ambrose, and Ambrose explained to him, and I, I don't think this is necessarily a right answer, but this is the answer Ambrose gave, was that you can interpret those barbaric passages in the Old Testament in a spiritual allegorical way, where they become edifying rather than just defiling your mind. So he did, his, his objections were out of the way, except for that whole sex thing. He could not give it up, and he was so wholehearted. He knew that when he became a Christian, it was going to be all or nothing. And he was tormented. He at one point actually prayed, God, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> he was tormented. He actually heard about Antony, and he was so moved. He said, how can this man, a simple person, find such stamina to control his flesh, and I find myself falling daily to the falling into sin. What can I do? So his mind was just on fire. He was tormented by this. And in the midst of this, he heard this child singing tole lege, which means take up and read. And he thought, take up and read. Is that, is that some line from a, song, a game kids play? And he couldn't think of one. He thought, maybe this is a message from God. So he went back to this manuscript, and his eyes fell upon Romans, I think it's 13, near the end of the chapter. Uh, Do not put on uh, provision for the flesh, but rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. But something supernatural happened there, and it was just a night and day difference. He was filled with a spiritual power from that on, and he was a changed man. So his conversion greatly colored his idea of salvation. He said, I am in complete bondage to the will. And he extrapolated that we're all in bondage to the will. And there's no way any of us can be saved unless there's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, because that's what happened with me. There's no, unless the Holy Spirit says, okay, you're a Christian, uh, we're hopeless. That became one of Augustine's trademark. And people either love Augustine or hate Augustine for that insight. The reformers took that up. He argued against a British monk named Pelagius who said, Augustine's teachings are deadly. Here he's saying that we can't be good unless we get this grace from God. Well, that's just going to leave people in their sins because, yep, 
I know I'm sinning. I'm just waiting for the supernatural gift. He thought, no, God must have already given us the grace. Pelagius denied original sin. For Augustine, original sin was that it was sexually transmitted, that the moment you were conceived, you were born in sin. Augustine said it was baptism that erases original sin, and that unless you've been baptized, you will not be able to go to heaven, even if you're an infant. And so he speculated on this place called Limbo, where, which was neither hell nor heaven, and that's where we get the term in limbo. And <clears throat> so that was what he, he taught. And he uh, ended up being a bishop at Hippo. He, attended, he was just attending the church, but someone recognized him and said, he noticed him, he said, he, changed his, he scrapped his sermon for the day and said, I'm going to preach upon how God mysteriously leads people to become leaders of churches, something along those lines. And he said, I, I just want you congregation to seek God to see if maybe he's brought a leader for us today. <laughs> and the congregation saw this. They made Augustine a co-bishop. Bishops at this point weren't allowed to leave their congregation. Augustine ended up performing pastoral duties. He wrote against uh, Donatism, against Pelagius. He wrote on all sorts of things. When Rome fell, he wrote City of God because people were saying that the reason Rome fell is because it's become Christian. He was saying, no, the reason Rome fell is because God has two cities. One is the city of selfishness of men based on selfish desires, and there's an invisible spiritual kingdom based on love for God. The kingdom based on selfish whims is going to rise and fall in a cycle. That's what happened with Rome. But the spiritual kingdom is going to continue. Oh, there's so much more I wanted to cover in this session. I wanted to talk about how the barbarians um, crashed through. I think I'll, I'll touch on that at the beginning of the, the next session. So many of August, uh, the exchange between Pelagius and Augustine is fascinating. It sounds so current because evangelicals who haven't be either been steeped in Calvinism or Arminianism and they're developing their own theology, they debate with this. Uh, Am I helpless apart from God? If God ha hasn't given me grace, am I, why does he still judge me for not being good? Those are tough questions, and if you read their debate, it's fascinating. One quick note. You know where the term chapel comes from? Anybody know? During the time of Julian the Apostate, there was a man who, who was punished by his father for becoming a Christian, so he sent him to be a soldier. While he was a soldier, there was this beggar who didn't have a cloak, and it was so cold. So Martin of Tours, later St. Martin, ripped his cape in half and gave it to this beggar. Later, Martin had a vision of Christ dressed in half a cape, and he received a blessing saying, just like you served this man, uh, served me, you were actually serving me. Martin joined a monastic community, went on to become a saint, and... It became a law that you had to have a relic in the altar. A relic was some remnant of a saint. I'll get more into this more later. They had spiritual, spiritual power. So they taught you have to have a relic under the altar for it to be an authorized church. And they put a piece of Martin's cape in the altar. And that, that particular church became known as a capel, capella, or a chapel, based on the cape. And the people who ministered there were chaplains. So, that's an etymology lesson for you. That's not the study of bugs, right? That's, that's entomology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Okay. Really, there's so much great stuff I had to skim through there, and if, if I just keep pushing it off, we're not going to get as far as I needed to. So please, uh, I hope that just whet your appetite to get into some more of this. And, and, you know what, once you find, once, if you pick up Augustine, I thought, man, here I'm reading someone who lived in the 300s. Is this, any of this going to make sense? And you might as well thought, this is someone who's writing in our current generation. And right from the beginning, his, his words, you know, O oh Lord, it, it, the whole book's a prayer. So says, O oh Lord, thou has made us for yourself, and we're restless until we find our rest in thee. And I read that, wow, first page. There's already so much to, to meditate on here. Session three, and I, you know what, I don't even get to go to the last question because I didn't cover that. What was the chief issue debated in the Council of Nicaea for one point? 